The allure of passive income. It plagues the internet, generates clicks and course sales, but of course disappoints nearly all those who chase it. In our world of buying businesses, the passive income fantasy looks like this. Buy a small business, pay someone to operate it for you out of the profits of said business, collect checks. <laughs> Most experienced people would say that such a strategy will break quickly and painfully, and to just put that out of your mind. But as today's guest, Matthew Saskin, points out, in some ways, the private equity model is built around doing exactly this, buy business, install operator. And Matthew himself is doing it. Now, as you'll hear, Matthew's acquisition is certainly not passive. He's putting 10 hours a week into the business, maybe more. But he did hire an operator to run and grow the business from the moment he became owner. The arrangement is working well enough that Matthew still works as W-2 and plans to indefinitely. So this is a fascinating case study of looking for a small business to buy and an operator at the same time, with the intention to install that operator immediately and never really operate the business yourself, to be working on the business, not in it, from day one. Also, you're going to learn about the towing business, and some of you will immediately jump on BizBuySell to look for one after you hear what Matthew has to say about that industry. Enjoy my interview with Matthew Saskin, owner of East Coast Towing in North Carolina. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. I want to share an update on the Acquisition Lab. As you know, the lab is a highly vetted, cohort-based accelerator and community for people serious about buying a business. After going through the lab's month-long intensive, you have ongoing access to almost daily Q&A sessions with advisors, regular live deal reviews with Walker Dibel, author of Buy Then Build, potential deal team introductions, and a very active Slack group with other searchers on the path. Well, the update is that the lab recently passed 60 businesses acquired and for well over $100 million in aggregate transaction value. Also, all members now enjoy lifetime access to the lab. Because when you buy a business, it's often just the first of many, and the lab wants to support you in every deal, not just your first. Lastly, check out my recent interview with Shane Ursum, episode 105. Shane acquired a business with over a million dollars in EBITDA in just six months, and he attributes a lot of his deal success to what he learned in the lab. Check out acquisitionlab.com or email the lab's director, Chelsea Wood, chelsea at buythenbuild.com. Matthew Saskin, welcome to Acquiring Minds. Pleasure to be here. Matthew, you bought a towing business in North Carolina at the end of last year. We're going to get a little tutorial on the towing business today, which I'm excited about. Uh, but also, you acquired this towing business, which is a, was a larger business, is a larger business for a self-funded searcher, and immediately put in an operator. You are not the owner-operator, and this is a fantasy of many people, uh, and yet discouraged by many others. Don't yep. think, they say, that you can buy a small business, 10% down SBA loan, and just put it in an operator and not be the operator yourself, at least not initially. Right. You are doing it, though, and are even maintaining your day job, your W-2. So we're going to spend a good amount of time 
on this structure, how you pulled this off, how you would address the naysayers. But first, Matthew, let's have some background on you, please. Yeah, yeah, by all means. Um, so, you know, as you mentioned, with the businesses in North Carolina, so I, I live in North Carolina. I'm in the, the Durham, North Carolina area. I've been here about 10 years or so. I was in New York City for most of the time before that. Um, by way of background, I, I come out of the technology industry. Um, so my, my, my degree is in computer science, although I've never used that uh, practically a day in my life. Um, but I've spent my, most of my career in the technology industry, mostly in um, technical sales, sales leadership, uh, general management and executive roles, been at large global enterprise service providers, um, have run startups and done a little bit of everything in between. Um, and that's that's what I do today as well. I, I, I look after uh, go-to-market operations for a, a large technology company. Um, separate from that, about 15 years ago, uh, my wife and I started investing in real estate um, as a, let's call it a solo GP, right? Our our money, our investments. Um, we did what I think many people do, which is bought a triplex using an FHA mortgage as our sort of first home plus investment. Um, so, you know, started out the gate with uh, fairly minimal down on that. The FHA program is a fantastic way to get into real estate investing. Um, had a couple of couple of tenants uh, pay the entire mortgage and then some. And this is this is when we were living in New York City. Um, and over time, we just kept investing in real estate, uh, uh, buying you know larger and larger properties. So went from a triplex to you know some larger stuff, a couple of a couple of ten unit properties, twenty um, some odd unit apartment building, um, all in the kind of value add class class C housing space. Um, and, you know, we've been doing that kind of on the side for the past 15 years. I've always had professional property management. So sort of used to the used to the concept of having others involved in a lot of the day-to-day operations of the thing we were putting our money into. Um, took advantage over the past several years of the uh, run-up in asset prices during COVID to, to sell almost all those. So we're now at a place where kind of the only real estate we own is the the house we live in and a piece of land that we're building a new house on. Um, and then we ended up being, you know, mid last year left with uh, left with a bunch of profits from some of these real estate sales going, okay, what's next? Like, where, where are we going to put the money? Um, the real estate market for, for various reasons, just not not a place we were looking to put a ton of money in at that point. Um, and, you know, given given my experience kind of running companies and running startups and, and some things we had talked about, um, you know, we, we had considered, you know, is it worth buying an operating company? And that could have taken a number of different directions, right? If it was something that was um, that was truly large enough, I'd be happy to step into that day to day. If it was something that was, let's say, a little bit smaller, but still relatively big, and we could talk about what that means, um, you know, which was the ideal target, one that's big enough that uh, has the cash flow to support debt service, support reinvestment into the business, and most importantly, support bringing in uh, an operator, a true executive level leader to run the business day to day. Um, and we also sort of geographically boxed the search to be relatively local to us. And the, the goal there was as an absolute fallback plan, if things went completely sideways, I'd have the ability to step into the business full time. My wife would have the ability to step in and help with things. Um, so that's always the contingency plan. Uh you know, we're, we're three and a half months in, knock on wood, we, things are looking extraordinarily positive and we'll, we'll talk more about that. Um, so suffice to say, took the money, um, spent about six months in total looking at businesses. The end of the day, I probably, probably reviewed 40 or 50 Sims, ended up talking to maybe 10 or 12 sellers, um, ended up issuing a, a single LOI for the one, for this one business that I thought kind of was the right one after, you know, several meetings with the sellers, probably spent six, eight hours in total with the sellers uh, before we even got to issuing an LOI. 
and then you know progressed to close. And as you mentioned, um, we closed the beginning of December and kind of jumped right into it. Great, that was a, gr a great background. Thank you. Um, going back to your real estate, just just for some color, I'm interested. So, all of your how many doors did you have at the end there? By the way, uh, at peak like fifty something, um, and it kind of ebbed and flowed over time. Where there were a few. Um, few things we sort of opportunistically sold when the right offer came along and had had been rolling those forward with 1031s with a few exceptions. And then the end decided to just get rid of the last handful of properties. Mm -hmm. And that first triplex that you bought, where was that? Where in New York? Uh, that was in, in Bushwick. So in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. um, pre, let's say pre Bushwick getting, getting cleaned up. So, so for us, it was just my wife and I at the time, uh, we, we did not have kids when we were in New York. Um, and for us, the the toss up was essentially, well, for about the same amount of money, we can we can either purchase kind of a, a condo in Park Slope, or we can purchase this triplex in Bushwick and have a have a kind of different life, but start a path that's that that reinvests money. And we, um, you know, hindsight being twenty twenty, made the right decision. <laughs> well, it's, it's it sure set a precedent because you you know you built this whole big portfolio. And then have parlayed that into small business ownership, and so you're now you're, it's it's you know your thing. You guys are building serious wealth on the side. Um, that's great. And so all fifty of those doors were in New York proper, in Brooklyn no, proper. No, even? we no. had no, we had properties uh, in New York City um, down here uh, outside the Raleigh area. We had a building in Chicago. Um, oh, so so our goal was really about. Um, really investing in markets that we that we knew, right? Either that mm. we had lived in, we had spent a bunch of time in, so we were able to sort of understand some of the 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 inner workings of the very specific areas we were putting money into. Um mm -hmm. so that that's sort of what led us to a handful of different markets. At a certain point, it stopped making sense to invest in New York City. At a certain point, it stopped making sense to invest in the kind of surrounds of of Raleigh. Um and that's where we landed. Okay, let's go back to your search now. So first of all, how are you searching? Were you just reaching out to cold outreach to brokers or biz by sell? Go ahead. Yeah, so in entirely brokered deals. So we we did not do any proprietary outreach and go and start calling sellers or potential sellers. Um, so a mixture of uh, some outreach to local brokers who I saw were doing volume, um, and then deals that were sort of broadly published, right? Things that were on biz by sell and others, um, and that that's sort of what led to the you know fifty or so at the at the top of funnel, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And the brokers that you you outreached to that you saw were doing volume, did you infer that they were doing volume simply because of their activity on Biz Buy Sell? Uh, so a combination of that, things that got listed on their own sites that weren't on Biz Buy Sell, um, some discussions I had with some some other folks who were searching um, sort of led to led to led to where we are. Um, and I knew from the beginning kind of the things that didn't interest us. So, so there's certain industries we had, we had no interest in buying a business in, right? Being in a, a pure retail business, um, food services industry, sort of the traditional home services businesses that everyone's buying. Um, those weren't of huge interest for a variety of different reasons. Um, and then, as I mentioned, we had sort of the geographical box of wanting to be within the general Raleigh-Durham area. Um, and then a size box, right? There's sort of a minimum footprint and obviously that changes based on interest rate and those sorts of things. But um, based on the equity we were looking to put in the deal, there was kind of a minimum uh, minimum EBITDA or cash flow needed to support buying the business, debt service, putting a, a leader in place, and then still having money to, to, to reinvest. Yeah, typically it's there's kind of the, the three things that a searcher is looking for in terms of EBITDA, the debt service themselves and reinvesting in the business. But you had that fourth, which was the operator because it, it wasn't it wasn't going to be right and and I was also you know 
by virtue of, you know, I have a W-2, I'm, I'm well paid. I, I really enjoy what I, what I do day to day. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I was able to sort of minimize the amount of money I'm, I'm paying myself um, basically to whatever, you know, to what our accountants felt was a, a reasonable amount to maintain S-corp status and be able to get mm-hmm. the benefits from there. Um, so, you know, paying myself sort of the minimum amount the accountants are happy with. Um, we're not taking any distributions now, nor do we foresee taking distributions out of the business for the you know, let's call it the next three to five years. Um, it's truly, uh, truly in reinvestment mode. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so actually, the, the 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 EBITDA, the profits from the business, didn't need to pay for that much more than a typical searcher would, because the typical searcher is going to pay themselves as an operator, and you were just going to pay an operator and pay yourself just kind of a token amount that to, to keep within IRS requirements of an escort. Exactly. Um, although you probably had to pay that operator or are paying that operator much more than many searchers pay themselves. They're often willing to pay themselves less early on yeah. because they're also in reinvestment mode. Correct. Yeah. So we've got um, a fairly, I'll say a fairly healthy cash plan for um, for the, the person I've got leading the business. Um, he's got some upside on an annual basis. And then um, we also put together sort of a phantom equity program. So, you know, he's sort of in it for the long term. We've got a multi-year vesting period and, you know, he'll he'll own a reasonable or he'll own the equivalent of a reasonable portion of the business over the next several years. So that, you know, sort of we're, we're um, we're tied together in terms of the long-term success. Um, he knows the direction we're looking ahead with the business. We're sort of we're in, we're in mutual agreement there and working towards the same goal. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to get into that in some more yeah. detail here in a few minutes. Um, and Matthew, you you have referred now a couple times to your, to your geographic box, just for for people to understand um, what what was your limit. I assume it was kind of a, a number of minutes drive time, no traffic radius, and what was that? It- Exactly. Yeah. So we were generally looking in kind of, let's call it 30 to 45 minutes in the Raleigh-Durham area. Um, like I said, I, I live in Durham, so I'm a little bit, I'm sort of northwest of Raleigh. Uh, but what you end up with in North Carolina is sort of Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, and some of the outlying towns form kind of the research triangle, right? That form this nice geographic area. Um, so we were really looking in those those cities plus the surrounding towns. Um, and, and that's mm-hmm. where we are. But you, you were going to allow yourself to buy a business that was up to, let's say, 45 minutes away. Would you yeah. have gone an hour away? It's a cra- Everything's malleable, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, if it had been yeah, a good I enough mean, opportunity. You know, exactly, right? If it was the right thing in the, the, the home office, so to speak, was an hour away, cool. If it was the right thing. And in this case, kind of our, our current home office, home office, head office, whatever, is uh, 32 minutes from my house without traffic. Um so, you know, it works for the, for, for when I need to run down there. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, when I need to, you know, I, I, I've gone down on weekends, I still, um, work out of that facility sometimes during, uh, during the day, if only because the, um, you know, the, it, it was a family run family held a business before most of the employees I don't think are, are, uh, are yet at a place where kind of an absentee owner or a financial owner, call it what you will, is something they really understand. So, um, you know, I've been making sure from day one that I spend time, I get to know everybody, that I'm I'm still a visible part of the business, despite all the day-to-day decision-making being handled by, um, by incidentally, by, by a guy named Matt, who's, <laughs> who's, who's the operational leader. Mm-hmm. And so what does that mean exactly? How many times a week are you in there or time every two weeks? Um, yeah, no, so, so we sort of timed the close right to where, um, you know, we, we sort of had vacation and the holiday and, and all that. So I was able to spend kind of the first three weeks fully dedicated to, 
to being there to helping get things up to speed, getting, you know, while while Matt's been handling a lot of the day-to-day ops, you know, I, I spent a whole lot of time getting back-end systems up and running, making sure we were good to go from, you know, the bank and all the finance systems and got our accountants up to speed and 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 all of that moving forward. Um from that point forward, you know, I've I've been working out of that office doing my other stuff a couple of days a week generally um mm-hmm. and we've done you know it's a 24 7 business which we'll, we'll get into um so you know so i've had the ability on nights and some weekends to go out to large accident scenes and sort of participate with the team and, and make sure they understand that kind of a, i'm a visible sort of a visible force and part of the business um similarly we've been sort of ramping up internal training uh, for our drivers, and we've been doing those on weekends, and I'm, I'm, you know, making sure I participate in all of those again to be visible, but also because, quite frankly, it's 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 cool. Like these are mm-hmm. this, this is cool equipment to get to play with and learn how to operate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, super cool. Okay, so for those first three weeks, you were in there kind of daily, and now you're in there a couple times a week. But you might you might actually just be doing like your other work, but your face is at least there. And 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 then you'll also kind of go to these trainings. You might go out into the field every now and then to actually see the work happen and kind of special occasions. So just looking for opportunities to 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 learn yourself, but also to show folks that you're there. Uh, yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah. And then how do you envision that kind of declining? Because I assume this is your this is kind of like an early burst uh, for people to see you and for you to learn, and that it'll decline a little bit over time. Do you do you do you have kind of a a steady state that you envision at month six or month 12 of yeah, how that, often you'll be in the business? Yeah, absolutely. So, so, um, over sort of the longer term, the, the intent is once we hit probably in the month six to month nine range, I'll probably ratchet that down to maybe once a week there. And, and by the time we hit, you know, middle of year two, I, I wouldn't intend to be spending a ton of time there. Um, additionally, you know, for, for, for now we've been, you know, I've been making sure that when um, Matt, my your, our GM, is is unavailable, um, that that I've been there just again. So there's someone who's present. Um, we've now, after th- you know three and a half months in, I think we've got we've got the right managers in place, and we'll we'll talk more about that. Um, and sort of the right people understand that they are allowed um, and empowered to make certain decisions on their own. So I'm I'm less worried that something's going to happen and someone physically has to be there to make a decision because we've we've. Like I said, we've got the right people. They know now that they are empowered to make decisions around certain things. So, um, you know, overall, that's that's how we're moving along. You already know that business owners are making amazing use of virtual assistants, often based in the Philippines. And while virtual assistants are helpful, virtual professionals are transformative. More Staffing is a boutique agency that hires A players in the Philippines, not for simple tasks, but for deep competency work. Think operators, supply chain managers, controllers. More Staffing de-risks your engagement with a 12-month guarantee to you, and they provide coaching for six months to their talent when an engagement begins. That means your hire is coached in the background, no additional cost to you, so that your working relationship flourishes and is as successful as it can be. Global staffing is increasingly the norm, and building the muscle within your business to take advantage of it will be crucial in the years ahead. Speak with more staffing about the pool of capable, affordable managers they can connect you with. Check out morenow.co. That's morenow.co. I want to go back to your search and, and get through that and then and really, really get into post-search. But 
You had said that you don't like home services, which is, as you mentioned, a, a, a hot area of search or activity today. Why did you decide that you don't want a, a, a home service business? Yeah, um, I think part of it was dealing with part of it is just the valuations have gotten crazy. Um, mm. The other part is dealing with some of the uh, dealing with some of the licensure and, and, and things like that. Um, and then the third, which may just be sort of local to this area. Um, there are a handful, you know, you look at HVAC businesses, for example, um, we have a handful of extraordinarily large, well-run, you know, fully digital HVAC services businesses in this area. I've, I've called them before I've used them. I've been a customer of theirs. Um, so I, there's not a ton of sort of differentiated advantage I could bring to those because there are several here that have already followed the playbook that, um, that most searchers who are requiring say HVAC or plumbing businesses would follow. So, um, not, not, not much opportunity to grow them here. Okay. And you didn't want uh, retail and you didn't want food service. Um, any others that would kind of be interesting to people that were, were are conventional choices that you chose against? Nothing that comes to mind. I look just, just okay. by nature of my background, I looked at a couple of small, small technology businesses, a couple mm. of, you know, some, some agencies and things like that. Yeah. Those just, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm used to working in more scaled technology businesses or, or, or software startups as opposed to, you know, a $5 million software business is very, very different than a $5 million agency in that you don't really get a ton of operating leverage in, in an agency professional services model and you do in software. So it, it's sort of all the worst parts of a services business and being subscale. Um, so there are a handful of those in the market. I talked to the sellers, looked through them and they just didn't, they didn't do it for me. But they're less attractive to you than a traditional services business where there's also doesn't have the, the operational leverage of software. Yeah. And I think the difference there is a sort of a traditional services business and we could consider towing a, a services business because it really yeah. is right. We don't, yeah. we don't gain any, we don't gain any leverage from, from anything really proprietary um, is sort of much like the HVAC playbook. These are, these are businesses that are so far behind on the, on the everything curve, right? So we can, we can call it technology, but it's the, the use of marketing, the, how you go out and acquire customers, regardless of what facet of the business you're doing, that there's still the ability to, to really gain, gain something over time. Whereas there are so many technology services businesses um, that, you know, if you're a $5 million one, there's not much you can do. You're not, you're not, you don't have the cash flow available or the, or the person power to reinvest into some proprietary systems to actually gain any leverage. So it's really just like a, it's a labor arbitrage um, game at the end of the day. And uh, actually, I want to circle back to that point. But first, did you look at software businesses like like uh, like on microacquire? I mean, somebody like you, did you go out and look for or, or e-commerce where there, I mean, there is more opportunities for leverage yeah. than just uh, an agency? I did not. Um, e-com as a whole just doesn't isn't particularly attractive to me. I don't know why it just isn't. Um, yeah. And smaller software companies, there's just um, at given what valuations people are looking for um, there. There's a lot of garbage businesses out there that are both not making money and sellers have unreasonable expectations of what they're worth. So nothing, you know, I, I peruse micro acquire a little bit. I see some deals there every so often, but nothing, nothing's just jumped out at me as like, oh my, oh my, this is, this is the thing. Mm -hmm. um, and also I think at a smaller scale software business, like you really, like I said, but my back, my degree is in computer science, but I, I am not a developer or engineer by, by any stretch of the imagination. And I think mm -hmm. with a lot of the smaller software businesses, unless sort of, unless you're the one who can go in and actually not just diligence code base, but be able to start making changes and driving improvements, um, you're, you're, you're truly at the mercy of, of whoever sort of whoever you can hire. Okay. 
and then Matthew, I also just want you to talk a little bit about your, this might be jumping the gun a little bit, but you have a lot of experience managing people. As you said at the top in your, in your background, you've, um, you know, managed very large teams within larger businesses. You've been involved in smaller st startups and everything in between. How in these first three and a half months, is that serving you and, um, also speak to people who might not have the same uh, the same amount of management experience that you do and what you would tell them. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it it, it is definitely serving me well. And it's sort of funny you bring it up because I was um before we started recording, I'd mentioned I, I met with another searcher who just recently acquired incidentally a towing business here in Raleigh. Um, <laughs> uh, I was met him over the weekend for uh, for for dinner. And one of the things that I I think couldn't quite articulate when I when we first started talking, but now he's about two weeks post close and it's hit him is kind of for us, the first month plus was um was truly an exercise in sort of in EQ and people management, right? You got a lot of people. And in our case, it was a it was a closely held sort of family-run business. The um the the founder of the business had had um unexpectedly passed away several years ago, but his his wife and some of her family members stepped in to to take over. Um so you know, there were a lot of really, really close personal relationships within the business. And I think, you know, a handful of the employees maybe felt a bit of a betrayal that all of a sudden this link to the founder who many of them knew was gone. Um, so yeah, the, the first month, just having the ability to to go in and sit down, talk to people, um, kind of understand what their concerns are, what their fears are, what they're looking to do was was absolutely invaluable. Like month one, Quite frankly, we really didn't look at much operationally. Like one of the the former GM who was a minority owner stayed on with us for several months in a consultative basis. And we we let him continue to run the day-to-day -day show for the first 30 days. So, you know, first 30 days for us were meeting the people, allaying concerns, kind of becoming becoming members of the team, um, making sure they all understood what the goals were, which is quite frankly not to change a lot, but to make it better in a couple of discrete ways. Um, and then getting the back office stuff moving, right? Like making sure the bookkeepers were lined up and that uh, payroll was working the way it should and all those sorts of things. So to bring it back, I think having having experience managing kind of widely distributed and larger teams was, was absolutely helpful. Um, the flip side of that would be, you know, if you're a searcher coming out of a, maybe coming out of a background where you don't have a ton of direct management experience, I don't necessarily think that's a problem. Um, like I said, for us, the first 30 days was probably a little less about I've had experience managing, you know, teams of hundreds of people and more just having that EQ, right? Having the ability to empathize and sit down and talk with people who realistically come from a very different background than you do, that than I do, than most searchers come from, um, and truly kind of understanding what are what are they looking to do? Why are they here? What motivates them? What are their fears about everything that's going on? Um, so take that for what it's worth. Yeah, that's great. And and going back to, or on this point about the EQ, so do you think that your misstep might have just been kind of not showing empathy, not appreciating how disruptive this might be and how threatening this might be to 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 the to the staff's uh, professional lives? Like, what, yeah, what, how, what would have um, an, a less ideal um, transition look like? Yeah. Um, and I think it's not a, like it, it, I want to be careful because I don't think it's a misstep. I think it is, uh, I certainly, I didn't fully appreciate going in just, just how kind of EQ heavy the first day and then the first week and then the first month would be, um, right. I think a, a less than ideal transition would have resulted in 
resulted in, you know, people, uh, people rage quitting and walking out the door. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so that yeah. would, that would be the less, the less than ideal scenario. Um, luckily for us, I sort of knew going in and was able to witness it firsthand. Like there were several employees who were, who were really upset week one, um, just super emotional, especially the ones who had been with us for say 10 plus years that were very close to the original owner and founder who had passed away. Um, cause this was right, truly the end of his family running this company. Um, but sort of, I, I knew going in, we had long tenure across a number of employees. Um, we pay pretty well, not top of market, but pretty well. Um, we offer substantially better benefits than our competitors in the surrounding area. Um, and you know, we're, we're generally, it's a good place to be. Our customers like us, they're, they're happy with us. Um, it's not a super stressful environment. So, you know, some of the people, it was really about just kind of giving them space to breathe and process and then making sure we can engage them. Others were kind of gung-ho from the beginning to just start start getting to know each other and, and get moving. And talk a little bit about how th this theme of, you know, you coming from a techie, white, very white-collar background and interfacing with people who have a very different, very blue-collar background. Um, did you, um, yeah, any, anything you want to say about that other than the obvious, just culturally, it feels very different. Yeah, no, I think there's sort of two things that were extraordinarily helpful. Um, mm -hmm. One is, and I guess this probably speaks a little bit to, to buyer business fit, as as many will call it. Um, while I know relatively little about the, or I, I knew relatively little about the towing industry, uh, I've at least, I've had cars towed of mine. I, I've sort of, my, my fallback career, I always joke, is being a mechanic. I've always worked on my own cars. I always have several project cars ongoing. So at least I know my way around a vehicle. I'm able to talk, sort of talk that talk and understand what's going on. So I think that kind of bought a, a bit of credibility in the beginning. Like while I don't know how to operate a, a tow truck of various sizes, I at least can speak fluently about vehicles and what's going on in the shop yeah. and understand that whole piece of the puzzle. So I think that yeah. helped a great deal. Um, additionally, you know, we didn't get to this yet, but um, Matt, my, my, my GM, uh, is a 20 year Navy vet, um, exited, uh, exited as a captain. So, you know, he, he's run crews of, you know, several hundred plus sailors. Um, he's run, you know, steam steam plant crews of 80 80 or 90 enlisted uh enlisted sailors so he he personally has much more experience dealing with that let's call it a blue collar background because that's sort of fundamentally what most of the most of the navy enlisted ranks are um mm -hmm. so i think the, oh, those two things combined from us have really helped to sort of get us um uh get us tied in with the team and and kind of get everybody on our side Thank you, Matthew. And then, so where did you ultimately find this business? Was it BizBuySell or was it one of the brokers who came to you? Uh, yeah, so this was listed on, on BizBuySell. And so give us some of the, the specs of the business. How big, how old, um, and uh, profitability, what you paid for it, kind of all the numbers yeah. that, that you can share. Yeah, so business was 25 years or is 25 years old. Um, past three, four years have been in the you know, let's call it 5 million-ish range in revenue. There was obviously a drop at the beginning of COVID. There was a bit of recovery the year after. Um, business has been running kind of historically at about 15 to 20% EBITDA margins. Um, end of the day, uh, end of the day, this was a, a $4.1 million purchase price. Um, as you could probably imagine, it's an extraordinarily asset-heavy business. So of that $4.1 million purchase price, point. Two, three point three million of it was allocated to to stuff, mostly to the trucks. Like there's there's probably a hundred thousand dollars of stuff in our shop, and then three point something million dollars in 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 trucks and trailers. About thirty five um, 
35 trucks and trailers of, of various sizes and shapes and, and values. Um, so asset heavy business, um, generally on a, on a good track. So the business, um, and I think this scared a lot of people who looked at it. In fact, I, I talked to one searcher several months before we went under LOI who actually had looked at this business and was scared off by the fact that there was a prior bankruptcy in the corporate history. Um, as you can imagine, following the death of a prior owner and some confusion that followed thereafter, um, things did not go particularly well. So the business filed bankruptcy in 2016, if I recall, um, purely through kind of the resultant chaos of, of, a, of, of a leader, um, of a leader passing away unexpectedly and just not being able to recover quickly. Uh, that said, you know, credit to, um, to the seller and, and her, uh, minority partner who's also in the family. Um, they did a phenomenal job recovering from it, uh, put together a really well-structured payout plan. They exited from bankruptcy protection, I think about 18 months ago, somewhere in that vicinity. Um, and they really did a good job taking this business from being clearly unprofitable to kind of a well-run, if not growing fast, um, a well-run, consistently profitable business. Uh, so, you know, I'll, I'll say we lucked out for lack of a better term, on on having something that was that was truly structurally sound to begin with. Like there's a ton mm -hmm. of spot area for improvement and that's what we're focused on, but the 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 bones were good, so to speak. Why did it scare the other searcher then? And 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 it didn't scare you. Just kind of prejudice, like if a business had had like a bankruptcy. That's really it. I couldn't get a clear answer other than oh it's a bankruptcy. And to my view, I'm I'm thinking, well number one, I'm 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 not it's not a stock sale, so I'm not worried about any kind of residual things from that, any residual claims rearing their head years from now. Um, mm -hmm. And you know what? Like, things happen, right? <laughs> it's it's not the end of the world that the business went through bankruptcy. I, you know, I spent several hours with the sellers discussing it and kind of understanding the nitty-gritty details and everything you could get beyond just looking up, right, bankruptcy court proceedings. Um, and it was a it was a, a perfectly kind of a perfectly human story as to what happened. Um you know, the, so the, so the, it didn't it didn't kind of suggest any fragility in the business. No, that... no, not in the not at all. They they grew they grew to they tried to grow too quickly, and then someone passed away, and it and and chaos ensued. It was, it's it can really be be summed up that way. Great, Matthew. So let's talk about your your intention to put in an operator. In fact, your 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 requirement that to put in an operator from day one. So talk us through the whole, how you thought about that. You've already touched on the fact that you, you were comfortable kind of having with your, your real estate portfolio, you'd always outsource management, but give us the whole kind of your thinking there and then how you approached it. And I'll jump in with questions. Yeah, absolutely. So um, something that uh, obviously we, we talked about offline, um, the thing that always struck me, and, and I say this having been in a leadership role at a PE-backed software company is, right, the PE model fundamentally is one of buying a company and putting an operator in place. Maybe that's leaving the operator from the company at, that was acquired. Maybe that's taking someone that's a, you know, an executive in residence and sitting on the bench or an operating partner. Maybe that's hiring someone cold. And, and again, I, I've, I've sat in those roles, so I'm, I'm sort of used to it or I've, I've experienced it firsthand. Um, so I I didn't think maybe it's a bit of naivete, but I didn't think that was an unreasonable approach, even at sort of the smaller scale. And to be clear, like five million dollars in revenue is not—it's not a particularly small business. And in this industry, in in general, we can get more into it. Like we're a, we're a sizable business in the towing and recovery industry. Um, yeah. So you know, I, I went into it just sort of knowing from the beginning the goal with this was to put an operator in place. The the other side of that, of course, was while we're working through the LOI, while we're working through the deal. 
I'm busy looking to, you know, searching for an operator for the business um, and knowing that those two things have to coincide, right? We, we weren't going to close until we had an operator in place who could be in with me day one. And realistically, uh, it, at the end of the day, he was on the books of the entity about a week beforehand so that we could kind of get every, get the playbook in place and get ready to kind of get ready to hit the ground running day one. Um, so maybe it's naivete, maybe it's just, that's my view of the world, but uh, that that was the plan from the beginning. Like, as I said, I I, I have a WG job. I really enjoy it. I, I like the industry I work in, I like the people I work with, company I work for, all that stuff. Um, so this was sort of primary investment first and first and foremost. Um, yeah, you, you know, I'm interested, you... It seems like from from your real estate days to now your SMB days, you really are you do think about things more of as an investor than an entrepreneur. Not to say that you're not entrepreneurial, but kind of a capital allocator. I mean, you guys you guys sell rather than kind of holding on to your real estate portfolio indefinitely forever and just kind of being owners and doing more and more real estate investment. You time the market so you see that the prices are out of control and you decide to sell. And then you look around and you say, how are we going to allocate this capital now? And you considered your options and you landed on SMB um, for a variety of, I assume, kind of logical reasons more than necessarily some big affinity to go in and operate a small business. So so you you, you really seem like more and more investor minded. That's... Um, would you first, would you agree? Am I am I right about that? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a fair statement, and and I think to go a step further, what we've done with real estate and what we're doing with with this business, um, our our goal doing it as opposed to say just just being an LP in others' deals because that's obviously yeah. something that could do as well. Right, um, is a bit of is a bit of selfishness and wanting to capture most of the upside for ourselves as well. So maybe that's just sort of my. My my risk level I'm willing to take, but um, you know, for us, the thought has always been we're we're willing to risk a little bit more to make sure that we capture the full upside, as opposed to, you know, as opposed to just being an LP in someone's deals and making ten or twelve or eighteen percent or whatever whatever it happens to be tied to the investment. Yeah, and, and on that point about risk, so you do seem like risk takers. On the other hand, you keep your W two. You've said that your W two is you keep it more just because you really you really enjoy your work. You're compensated mm-hmm. well, and and so on. Um, but you know, other people in our world uh, would certainly be thinking about just making this their full time thing. If if not not to be a towing company operator forever, but for long enough to then acquire a second SMB and build a hold co and kind of take that path as far yep. as it will go as a full, but giving their full efforts, their full time to it. Uh, how do you react to that? Um, I, I think it's perfectly reasonable. And I, and I, I, I'd be willing to bet that's a place we end up with at some point in the future. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I'm still relatively, uh, I'm, I'm 38. Uh, so I got, I got, I got plenty of runway. Um, yeah. I would, I think it's entirely reasonable and we can talk more about this. I'm happy to, to that, that we're in a place where, you know, over the next, let's call it 10 years, I think, um, where, where I don't have a W2 anymore. And, and the, the focus is purely on sort of our portfolio and either a much larger version of this company or to the point, potentially several companies with some adjacencies to one another. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that's, I, I don't think that's an unreasonable place to be. It's not, it's not where I want to be right now, but um, love to get there. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you know, to that, to that eventuality, in in some sense, you're you you are jumping ahead, though it might not seem like that because you're not diving in and operating yourself. Like to make any holding sure. co- company model work, you basically have to be able to buy a business and put on an operator. Right, and so that's actually in some ways that's kind of like 
a more advanced level of play than, so than going in and being the operator, <laughs> operator yourself. So if you can figure out how to do this well once with your towing business and maybe a second time, um, you've actually unlocked a lot more scale more quickly than your conventional searcher does who kind of gets in there and operates for two or four years themselves yep. and you know doesn't trust themselves to put on an operator <laughs> until they've done the operations themselves sort of thing. Sure, yeah. Which is probably where I am, to be honest. You know? No, and, and this one, I think, you know, part of part of the diligence process was truly vetting out, like this business, to be very clear, nothing was documented, right? So it's not mm. like we walked in and there was an operations playbook or anything like that. Um, but generally, people had a good understanding of what they were supposed to be doing and how it happened. So so it's been more, a me- more about sort of unlocking what's stored inside a couple of people's heads and starting to get it on paper and systematize it, um, mm-hmm. as opposed to just walking into something that was complete and utter chaos. And step one was trying to piece together what the process even is. Like we had people who clearly know what they are supposed to be doing and execute it well. Um, so it's about capturing that and then making sure we can kind of push it forward. Another advantage of buying a, a business on, a, on the larger side is is that- 100%, right, right, right. I mean, this is one to be very clear, the, the prior owners, um, one was the day-to-day operations leader um, and there were some downfalls to that, which we can get into. Um, and one was purely doing back office administrative tasks, right? Uh, managing the books and so forth. And okay, like that's, you know, we knew day one that the books were going to get outsourced and okay, cool. We, we just eliminated 90% of the job of one of one, one of the prior owners, right? So, so um, yeah, that we sort of knew going in that, that there was some low hanging fruit like that, that would not be, uh, not be a scary or hard thing to, to, to make more sort of systematized and let it just run. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I, w- I want to actually circle back on something, but related, but f- before we do that, just to be clear, so $5 million in revenue with 15 to 20% EBITDA. So we're looking at 700, 800 to a million in SDE. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Go- so, so this low hanging fruit, uh, always the, the phrase of choice in our world you talked about like with agencies, how you, how agencies are already very tech forward. They work in tech. And so there probably isn't a lot of low hanging fruit in agency land. It's fiercely competitive. It's just pure labor arbitrage. Yep. Whereas you, I'd, I'd never heard this one before. I liked it a lot. You said about this business that it was behind, what was it? On the everything curve, it was behind? Yep. Yeah. On the, okay. On the everything curve, it was behind. I and that is a kind of traditional way to view small business land that there's just so many ways to optimize. Um, but I've also heard sometimes counter uh, points that it's like these businesses look unsophisticated and and inefficient from the outside, but in fact they're they're, they're maybe not as inefficient as they seem. And maybe you know putting in cloud software isn't going to be the win. Uh, that you think getting rid of yeah. the fax machine w- will be, and 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 actually, my my interview from a, a week ago, Monday the thirteenth, was with um, uh, Michael Arietta, who who has built is building a holding company. He's acquired three businesses, and kind of went through that progression where he thought initially it was going to be putting in tech that was those were going to be the big levers, and he still does that, but only when there's a screaming need for new tech. Yeah. It's not it's not like his go to, and in fact what his go-to is, is better culture. And I thought this was a really interesting insight that that maybe the the opportunity in a lot of these businesses isn't getting rid of the fax machine. Mm-hmm. It's improve it's 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 attacking the culture with intention and with 
tenderness or whatever. Right, right. Um, and anyway, so so answer all of that, please, Matthew. <laughs> no, no. So, and I think when I say sort of behind on the everything curve, um, it, it truly does mean everything, right? So uh, when you look at technology as an example, um, not a particularly technology heavy industry. Uh, we're we have there are there are basically two SaaS platforms out there in use by the towing industry for doing dispatch and fleet tracking and impound management and things like that. Um, they were already on one of the two. Uh, mm-hmm. It works well enough. I have my own qualms with kind of the reporting capabilities and the platform we have are are, are pretty terrible, um, and that's fine. Like we'll get over that hurdle. We'll talk with a vendor. We'll figure out what we need to do. But but by and large, it it works well. Similarly, you know they already. They were using email and using chat to be able to communicate with the drivers when they're parked and things like that. So, you know, it was simply about professionalizing that, taking it from being, you know, truck102ect at gmail.com and bringing everything over to, you know, name at eastcoasttowing.com and, and kind of cleaning up the brand a little bit. Similarly, you know, we had a web presence and a social presence that hadn't been touched in years, later five plus years. Um, so, you know, we just got finished updating the website and and starting to pay some attention to sort of organic reach because a fair bit of our business is what we call a cash call. Like people who truly break down on the side of the highway, search for a towing company near me. And if we pop up, they call us. Um, beyond that, you know, there there's just this litany of little things that just um, weren't addressed by the prior owners for any of a number of different reasons. They're all super small wins. Um, so when I talked about there being kind of inefficiencies to one person being the operations person who was not interested in hearing feedback or suggestions from any of the other employees, so they all got kind of beaten down into a thing of not asking, right? Everybody just kind of did their thing and went about their way and, and carried on. Um, so, you know, we, we took a bunch of very small actions month one to make sure everybody understood if there's a problem with something, small as it may be, Bring it up and we can address it, right? Things that are a hundred bucks to fix, super easy. The dispatch office, like they had a vacuum that hadn't worked in a year and a half. Cool. I can literally drive to the Walmart that's a minute from the office, spend 150 bucks. Voila, you got a new vacuum. Everybody's happy. Um, you know, making sure the office was just generally cleaner, right? Getting a cleaning crew in, getting exterminators in, like little stuff like that bought a ton of goodwill and also started to get people attuned to the culture of we can fix problems. I can't guarantee that we can fix everything, but when you bring things up, it will be listened to, addressed. We may ask you as the person asking to do some homework and help us fix it, but then we'll spend the money and fix it, or we'll change X, Y, Z and get it done. Um, So, you know, a lot of the effort, as I mentioned, has been into that sort of building the culture, getting people um, to a place where they want to spend their time and energy invested in the company because they know that they're going to be listened to and they all have great ideas. They've been doing this a boatload longer than I have or that than, than Matt has. Um, so getting feedback there um, and then, you know, working on sort of the marketing side of things, right? We put a ton of effort over the past three months into uh, into adding to our Google review base. You know, we've, the business was at I don't know, 380 380 reviews and 4.6 stars when we took it over. We're at 520-something reviews and just ticked up to 4.7 stars. You know, we we get almost exclusively five-star reviews. So our customers really like us, and we've seen that that velocity of adding reviews has resulted in more cash calls and more customers calling us. Um, And it's also become a source of pride for the employees, right? We put in place some, you know, $50 cash bonus for whoever guesses the date when we hit 
450 reviews, 500 reviews, mm-hmm. 550 reviews. Um, so, you know, it's got our dispatchers now who are the, the interface to customers, right? When you call in, you talk to our dispatch office, you know, they're, they're talking about and checking the Google reviews on a daily basis. And, um, you know, it's, it's really cool to see that and to see everyone starting to take some, some more pride in, in the business itself and in our reputation in the industry and in the, in the area. That's a, a really clever contest. Uh, Matthew, because it it um, you're just incentivizing a trivial thing like anybody can say, oh, th- this date, but it just it it trains everybody's attention on the reviews, it, but right. indirectly, right, <laughs> sort right, of right. in a selfish way. Like, am I gonna am I gonna win the prize? Yeah, and, and so far we're not we're not doing prices right rules. So so far the the prize keeps ticking up because no one's hit the exact date. Uh, we, we we just had someone miss it. Uh, miss 500 reviews by about six hours or so. If if a review oh. came in, you know, six hours later, it would have been the next day and they would have got one, you know, a hundred bucks. So everyone's focused <laughs> down on 150 bucks for the next target. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Cool. Um, all right. All right. We still haven't really talked about Matt, finding Matt. Um, yeah. So so how did you, let, yeah, let's talk about how you found Matt and then let's talk about the structure of the deal that you have with him. Perfect. So, um, Generally, I went out and looked in two places. Um, put a job post out on out on SearchFunder to to find what was what I posted out there as an operations leader. So a, you know, think a COO or similar. Um, and then put some job posts on LinkedIn as well. Um, the candidate quality from LinkedIn was not particularly good, and I think that's because kind of the listing something as a general manager ends up getting you a lot of kind of true general managers, so people who have you know, retail or hospitality or food service GM experience, which which is perfectly fine. I think any of them would make suitable, purely operations managers, someone to go in and make sure the ship goes in a straight line. But I was truly looking for someone who could do that and also be a, a strategic partner in the growth of the business because the intent is we grow it and we can put additional additional managers in needed as things expand in various ways. Um, so that was LinkedIn on SearchFinder, ended up having let's call it six or so kind of really high quality candidates come across. Um, and they generally fit into two buckets. Um, there was a bucket of, of folks who were younger, had predominantly PE experience, maybe a little bit of operations experience. Um, and were very clear that, you know, their, their goal was kind of save money, build capital, gain experience and go out and launch their own search three, four five years down the road, which to me is perfectly fine, especially I'm, I'm happy to, Happy to help someone gain some experience. Um, if I see someone successfully operate for three, four, five years, I know where I potentially want to place some money in the future. Um, <laughs> the, the flip side to those candidates is I knew it would take a sort of heavier load of, of mentoring and guidance from me for someone who did not have a sort of a deep managerial bench to, to, to come from. Um, the other pool of candidates were uh, more later career uh, of folks who had a variety of different corporate experience. A lot of them had sort of executive experience at similar size companies, let's call it five to $10 million in revenue. Um, weren't, you know, were on search funder. I don't know why, but, you know, weren't looking to go and run their own business or buy their own business, but sort of liked being in the SMB world and liked running SMBs. Um, <clears throat> so went through an interview process. Uh, at the end, kind of narrowed it down to two or three really serious candidates. We started talking numbers and things like that. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, the decision I made and I think it, it cost me a bit more, cost the business a bit more money, but I'm, I'm totally okay with that, was that kind of based on the depth of expertise and experience that Matt brought to the table from his time in the Navy, his time in some SMB inc- incubators over the past five, six years, um, post-Navy career, um, was sort of going to be the, the right person. Um, 
and that's that's where we landed. SMB incubator. Yeah, so he had post post Navy. He has been doing some consulting work with a, a handful of um, handful of university SMB incubator programs. So think, you know, there's I can't remember which school. One of the university down in Florida has a um, has a program to help. I guess to help graduates who either are launching or have launched small businesses, some technology related, some not. Um, but he's he sort of worked as a let's call it an entrepreneur in residence or consultant in mm. residence for them. Um, he's in a COO role at kind of a tech startup, kind of a physical logistics business. Um, so had had a good bit of um, I don't want to say real world because that sounds like a pejorative um, of non Navy experience, mm-hmm. coupled with you know coupled with 20 plus years of, of progressive, um, progressive officer experience in the Navy. So, uh, mm-hmm. those two things worked really well together. And then obviously key, key thing also is just, we had along really well, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, this mm-hmm. is someone who I'm entrusting to do quite a lot. Um, and I'm spending a lot of time with, uh, and you know, want to make sure that we, uh, we get along with one another and have the same goal in mind. Mm-hmm. Really interesting to hear um, about the two buckets of candidates that you got from Search Funder, and in the second bucket that Matt fe- Matt fell into. So, I guess there so there are some sort of mid career executive experience, um, executive level type people who have a cultural affinity for SMB. So rather than getting a gig in corporate, they want exactly. to be working in small businesses or and not in startups and not in Silicon Valley. Exactly. So this is, right. a, this is a cohort a of, of, okay. And, and they're, and they're, but they're beyond general managers. They're not people who ran the local, whatever X. Exactly. Like right. Food service business. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Um, can you tell us more? So I, well, I'll just, um, punchline here. Matt doesn't live in North Carolina or Matt's family doesn't live in North Carolina. Right. So th- that's an interesting angle to this. T- tell me, tell that, me more about that. That is correct. And that was, um, I'll say it was a big sticking point for me at first because I wasn't quite sure how that was going to work. Um, but we spent a whole lot of time talking about it. I'm assuming this is a byproduct of his Navy career and both being away from family and family moving around all over the place. Um, but works really well for him. So sort of generally how we're structuring it is, you know, he's he's here in North Carolina full time, has an apartment, is living here. Um, you know, he does a handful of long weekends, either back home or, or meeting his family elsewhere. They're, you know, traveling for, um, you know, some of his daughter's uh, uh, sporting events, things like that. Um, once we hit kind of six months or so, the place we've landed at is he'll probably end up taking sort of an extended, you know, long weekend. Maybe it's going to be a Thursday through Sunday or something um, once a month and or twice a month and heading, heading back home. Um, and that works for them. That works for them. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'm not I'm not one to judge or comment. I spent. I spent almost a decade uh, in corporate traveling 50% of the time. So it's, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not that dissimilar, I suppose. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you, and he, his family is based where did you say? Uh, in Colorado, Colorado. So co- yep. Colorado to North Carolina. Okay. Okay. Um, and, and just going back to the timing. So did you have, I guess, I mean, were you just kind of marching forward in, in finding a mat and marching forward with the LOI process, the offer process, the due diligence of the business and just kind of hoping that they would that that, the, that they would align, that they would intersect on the timing. Uh, I mean, yeah, I suppose hope is a word. Um, you know, I, I, I was <laughs> like, I was, what would you have done? I mean, hiring no, good, a, good an operator that's great is it sounds like you got really lucky with Matt, but it, it could have been very likely that you just never had found a Matt. 
I was confident enough that I could find the right person. Um, mm -hmm. And again, maybe there's some naivete there. Like I said, I've, I've hired a whole lot of people in my career. I've hired a whole lot of fairly senior leaders in my career. Um, I know they're out there. Maybe I had a bit of a feeling just, just um, based on the search fund and SMB ecosystem that there is this pool of people out there who, who want to work and run small businesses, but, but don't want to work in tech and don't want to work for a startup. Um, mm -hmm. And sort of my own, my own, my own search for a, for an operator out there proves that there are these pools of people out there un, unquestionably. And, it, you know, I, I, it was, it was not hard to find a, a reasonable enough pool of candidates that I could then get to pretty quickly, a handful of really, really solid ones and get pretty far down the process. So um, for, for those who are maybe hesitant or don't think it's possible, I think it's entirely possible. There's, there's a, there's a ton of these people out there. Um, I'd say even more so in that first bucket of, I eventually want to start a search fund or buy my own business, but I don't have the experience, capital, whatever to begin with. And I need, you know, I need five years of runway to kind of build that up. Um, so if, if that's in particular, right, especially um, fast forward five or 10 years, right. If, 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 if I'm able to spend more time on something and maybe we're just running investments, that's absolutely the type of operator that I'd be happy to sort of invest more time in. Um, again, for the selfish reasons of gives me the ability to see what someone's doing firsthand, gives me the uh, gives me some time mentoring people, which I, I love doing. I love being able to help others um, and tells me where I could potentially invest money in the future mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. And, and um, give us a little bit more, Matthew, on what you'd said about Matt, where like what differentiated him from, you know, the, the, the many, many GMs that are out there that have run, you know, a local restaurant or hotel or something. What, what was that, 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 that extra that you were looking for and that Matt had? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I would say it comes down to a couple of things. One, the, for this in particular, and I think that applies to most blue collar businesses. I think the the Navy experience and in particular being a, you know, being an officer and, and at the end of the end of his career running a boat, um, was tremendously experienced, uh, tremendously helpful. He's he's run large crews of people. He's operated in a in a twenty four seven environment, which this business is. Um, he's run sort of as I said, the equivalent of blue collar workforces before. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then equally as important, he's done something outside of the Navy. Um, so you know, is able to see that there's both the ability to create structure and rigor and create and follow a process, while also being able to think strategically. And I, I've not personally had enough experience with kind of senior military officers to know whether this is the case across all of them, but he, he definitely has an ability to, to sort of think strategically and view the three to five year plan, um, be able to provide super meaningful feedback and, and, and input into what that plan is and how it, how it's going to change over time. Um, so it was really a great balance of, of deep operations experience. Um, and the ability, sort of a proven ability to, to think strategically. If Matt hadn't worked out, you did find from, you said you, there were six candidates that's, that were all kind of strongish um, from SearchFunder. You you do feel like if Matt hadn't worked out, there were some second and third choices that were Yeah, very, that were very decent. much so. So more, more than back, decent. More than decent. Yeah. No, so no, there so, so been... going back to your confidence that there is a pool of people out there, it's not just you got super lucky with Matt. There's actually a pool of people out there who are who who are good candidates. You don't have to strike it rich. You don't have to get super lucky. hundred percent. Yeah. There was um, of the, I don't know, of, of the second place, so to speak. I think that mm -hmm. I had, um, 
There was one that I would have had no qualms whatsoever about hiring. And there were two that I would have happily hired knowing that it would have taken a greater investment of my time, um, especially in the first probably six to 12 months in kind of keeping on top of them, helping them out would have involved, you know, much more spending time together after hours and coaching and guiding. Um, whereas, you know, I mean, I, I just, uh, I was just on vacation for a week um, and didn't, not the slightest bit concerned about anything like Matt as he's got more than everything handled and, and rolling along. Fantastic, Matthew. Okay. Um, let, can you, before we move on from Matt, yeah. of course, the, the aligning of incentives, the, the package, the compensation package that yep. you offered him, the, the phantom equity, you, you used that phrase earlier. Um, I assume some of this, you, you won't be able to, to go into, you know, exactly what, how many dollars you're paying him. But if you can, great. Tell us what you can, because um, this, how you structure something like this will be very interesting to people. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, there are, um, I won't do it here. I have shared privately with others who have reached out to me, um, more specific details about the compensation structure. So I guess consider that an open invitation. I'm, I'm happy to talk through it in more depth with others, but sort of broadly, um, he's got an, let's call it an above market base comp for the job he does day to day. Um, uh, there is a variable cash structure on top of that where we we did 30% on top of it um, that's tied to a matrix of revenue and EBITDA growth. And actually um, full credit for that structure goes to goes to Michael Girdley. Um, so borrowed Ooh. borrowed from some of his some of his um, writings on on how he structured that. And then sort of off to the side, we created, like I said, a sort of phantom equity agreement. Um whole host of reasons why it's not true equity or, or true, you know, truly making him a member of the operating company. Um, but he sort of got a functional equivalent to that. So we're doing a four-year, sort of a, a ramped four-year vest. So off the top of my head, it's uh, 10%, 20%, 30%, then the remainder after year four. Um, mm -hmm. And what that basically entitles him to is is two things, um, both tied to a percent ownership or a behind the scenes percent ownership of the company. Um, one is, you know, obviously if we, if there's some sort of liquidity event, right, we get to a place where we eventually sell the business. Um, he gets a portion of that, of, of growth in EV from purchase to disposition. Um, and at a point in time where sort of where I decide that we're going to start taking distributions from the business, which would really be if we're not at a place where we've sort of sold or substantially grown the business by, you know, year five, year six, that's probably about the time you start taking distributions instead of reinvesting everything. Um, then he's entitled to sort of proportionate distributions of cash, uh, proportionate to ownership or quasi ownership. Um, and, you know, we went back and forth on the specific details there, but um, overall, I think everyone agreed it's a, it's a really good mutually beneficial way of working towards how do we keep, how do we keep someone well paid, well compensated for what is a very difficult job now, um, and also in sent towards the long term growth. With both of us knowing the end goal is to grow the business substantially over the next five plus years, and either you know either sell it if the right thing comes along, or keep it going in perpetuity as a much larger cash flow generating thing. Mm -hmm. And so, just on the dividends thing, let's just say for sake of argument, easy numbers, yeah. you it cash flows out a hundred thousand dollars per quarter. So when you take out $100,000 in dividends, 
he will get, let's say his phantom equity is 20%, he'll get $20,000 in dividends and you'll get the 80. Great. That's great. Once he's, once he's fully vested. So after yep. the four or five years, um, and then going back to the, the enterprise value. So should you exit the business? Let's assuming he's fully vested. Yep. He, so say, say, you know, you, you, you bought the business for $4 million and you sell it for, let's say $10 million. Yep. So that's a $6 million profit or, above you know, capital gain. Um, and so, He's fully vested, let's say, let's call his, his phantom equity 20%. So that would ent- entitle him to 20% of 6 million? That's correct. Okay. And then, and lastly, phantom equity. So what is the point of phantom equity versus true equity? Yeah. So, and, and I am, I am not a securities lawyer, so don't quote me on any of this, but what I, what I've been told by, by, by my attorneys is the act of actually granting equity over true equity in the business over time would require registering it as a security and, and dealing with a whole bunch of additional both paperwork and legal complexity. Whereas sort of a phantom equity agreement is essentially a, a, a piece of paper on the side that is a, a, a contract between the company, the entity and the employee stating the terms of everything we just went through. So what the vesting period is, what that entitles them to, obviously there are some taxable differences, right? It's no longer, it would not be for him treated as capital gains, it's pure cash payments. So there's some tax disadvantages to to the employee yeah. for phantom equity mm-hmm. versus true equity, but um, makes things overall simpler. And what about control? Does it have any any impact or control, or not really? Because that that's all that's all written up in a contract anyway. Yeah. So so um, he, he so he has no control. Um, right. I, I suppose one could structure it such that you eventually phase in to some control or some real ownership over time. But again, not not a lawyer, so don't uh, don't quote me on that. <laughs> but either way, like it's not because it's phantom equity that he does or does not have control. Because even if it were pure true equity, he also might not have control. So really, that's correct. The f- okay, all right, really interesting, Matthew. I gotta say, you uh, you seem like you've really learned a lot about this world. I mean, you only started this. So here we are in March. You only started basically mid year last year. So nine months ago. I mean, had you done? Are you just a quick study, or had you had you did, were you already kind of conversant in this stuff? What, like, I'm just curious how somebody like seems like such a natural at all this in such a little amount of short amount of time. Define this stuff. This stuff being the business side or the towing industry. Is, it, we haven't gotten even. To that. No, no, no. We haven't even gotten to the towing industry. Yeah. Uh, no, no. The the just the mechanics of buying small businesses and all the considerations. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is. Uh, part of it is I'm a quick study. Um, part of it is I've got a fair bit of experience dealing with VC and PE backed businesses and dealing with sort of the investment side over there. I've done some M&A work on, on the corporate side of things. So I think notionally I understand and have, have direct experience with buying businesses and selling businesses, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. albeit at sort of the lower mid-market and larger. So kind of 5 million EBIT plus. Um, so a lot of those mechanics are similar. They're kind of more complex on the larger side. And on the smaller end, um, quite a bit of it is not uh, there's more detail to it, but it's actually not dissimilar to to real estate investing once you get to a slightly larger scale. So, right, buying a, a single family home or a, a, a two unit property as an investment is is pretty easy. Um, but once you get to say 10, 20, 30 unit apartment buildings, all of a sudden you do need to worry about like what is the transition process? How do we get 20 or 30 leases from tenants moved over? How do you introduce a property management company? How do you take over from you know, potentially years of deferred maintenance. How do you deal with the operational ins and outs of it? Um, so I think there's a lot of similarities there, but uh, I, I'm also a quick learner. Well, one thing that uh, actually I wanted to ask you how how you find this 
uh, investing in small business is different or similar to investing in real estate. You just answered some of that, um, but you, you know, it doesn't require the same EQ to to invest in property as it does. Correct. Uh, these are all, as we all know, these are these businesses are comprised of people. Um, so, can you elaborate on any of the similarities or differences between your past life as a property investor and your now life as an SMB investor? How it feels. Um, Different yeah, I mean, I, contrast. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, yeah, I mean, so so as right as you mentioned, right? Businesses are people. Businesses and and um, real estate is not like there are people involved. You have tenants; they are fundamentally your customers. Um, and in our case, like Class C, uh, Class C housing is kind of um, let's call it housing of last resort, right? It tends to be affordable housing or or something close to it. You kind of tend to have consistency of tenants who are there, maybe not consistency of tenants throughout the life cycle, right? They might not stay long, but there's always people ready to move in. Um, so, you know, similar in, in similar in some regards, right? In the due diligence, lots of, lots of procedures and, and, and process and check boxes to get through to make sure you got everything you need. So the day one, you or your property manager can kind of hit the ground running. Um, coming into this, which is a fairly capital intensive business, that's, that's not dissimilar to real estate. Like there are you know, you'll, you'll always hear the trope, depreciation is a real expense. Depreciation is a real expense. And you get it with buildings. Um, you get it here with, you know, 30 trucks running or running around North Carolina and parts of the Eastern seaboard. Um, so, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, it's still real estate is still running a running a business. Um, if you choose to take it and do it perfect, do it professionally. And I don't mean that in the sense of, you know, being a GP, having LPs and so forth. But if you, if you want to treat it in a professional manner, not just Hey, I own a house down the road and I rent it out. Um, it's a real business. Let's close out. Uh, we're, we're, we only got a few minutes left, but I definitely want to spend some time on the towing business and towing <laughs> industry itself. So let's tell, let, let's start with where you, something you already said, which is yours, East Coast Towing. That's is correct. the name of the business. Yeah. East Coast Towing is a, is a large business for the industry. So um, expand upon that. Yeah, absolutely. So the towing industry as a whole is still very much mom and pop operated. And there's not a ton of great data out there. Um, but sort of from what I've seen anecdotally and some research that I've read, uh, what little, little is out there, you're to, you're at a place where kind of 80-ish percent of the towing companies out there are true mom and pop operations. Like one person, one tow truck, maybe they have one or two employees and, and that's kind of it. Um, from there, you start ratcheting up and you have kind of let's call it the next 15 to 18% being in the five to 10 trucks, maybe five to 10 employee vicinity at that scale, you're probably doing a million dollars a year in revenue somewhere in that vicinity. Um, economics as an owner still are not really good. Um, and then you get kind of the few and far between that are, that are bigger, bigger defined as, you know, 20 or 30 or more trucks doing, three to five to 10 plus million dollars in revenue. Um, again, speaking sort of anecdotally in the Raleigh area, there are probably, there are probably 70 or 80 towing companies in the immediate vicinity here. Um, there are only three, including us, that are sort of of the size we're at. Um, and we're the biggest, at least in terms of vehicles and people. I can't, obviously hard to get a handle on revenue. Some of these businesses do other things. One of our large competitors in town also, um, operates as a heavy truck mechanics. So they've got a, you know, they do a large diesel repair shop. So they clearly have revenue from that. That's different from, from our streams of revenue, but, but the, the, the companies at this size in this industry are, are relatively few and far between. Um, 
And like one of the last sanity checks before closing on this was um, just as it happened in mid-November, kind of the, the largest industry conference was held just up in Baltimore. So I took a trip up there. Uh, Matt flew out to to meet me there. And you know, we spent a couple of days in classes, a few days wandering the trade show floor um, and just talking to people. And that that kind of cemented everything we had thought leading into it, which is, again, highly fragmented industry, a lot of mom and pop operators, a lot of... Um, lack of professionalism and how companies are approaching how they run their business, how they manage their fleet, how they market and sell and all that, all that great stuff. And what about the high CapEx? I mean, when you, what you just described is like, okay, great ideal. Like why? And so the question is when you see a highly fragmented industry, like why hasn't PE or searchers, why haven't they gone in there and why isn't there more activity yet? And I suspect in, in this business's case, it's just because there's high CapEx, which is always a, a flag to, business buyers. We don't, we don't like that. Um, any other things to not like about, I mean, tell us a little bit more about the character of the industry, the growth. I mean, is it growing? Talk, talk to me about it more some of these qualitative features. Yeah, absolutely. So I think at, at, from an objective standpoint, kind of the only thing to not like is it's CapEx intensive. Mm -hmm. um, going beyond that, the industry overall is growing at, I think it's three to 4% CAGR or something like that. Like you got to think through fundamentally what drives people to need vehicles towed. And there's a few macro things that do that, right? One is the number of cars on the road, which is going up. Number two is the age of cars on the road, right? Older cars tend to break down more, be less reliable. So that drives more usage of towing services. And by and large, especially as we, you know, potentially hit some economic headwinds here, uh, the age of cars on the road is going to go up as people keep vehicles longer. Um, another piece of the business, which is really on the, the heavy duty towing side is how much, um, how much truck freight is moving along, right? Because the same thing as a car, right? The, the, those box trucks and tractor trailers and all that stuff, they break down, they need to be serviced, they need to be towed. And when they need to be towed, oftentimes it's a, it's a fairly big ticket because you're, you're taking the tractor and trailer to the destination it was going to letting them unload the trailer, <laughs> unhook the trailer, then bringing the tractor back to wherever it'll, it belongs to be repaired. Um, same thing with bus fleets and things like that. So sort of the macro conditions, it's it's growing along with the general economy, right? More people, more cars. It's set more cars on the road lead to more accidents that need to be cleaned up, stuff, stuff like that. Um, and then, uh, you know, what you also sort of face in the industry is whether, um, and we can, we can spend some time on this, but kind of who pays the bills. And in a lot of cases, yeah. um, a lot of our bills get, especially things like accident cleanup, um, get paid for by insurance companies, right? They're not paid for by the by the actual customer because they get an accident, we tow the vehicle or we tow several vehicles. The insurance company eventually comes to claim it and pay the bill and either scrap the vehicle, send it off to get repaired, that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, if I had to quantify, probably, probably a third of our revenue is paid for by an insurance company at the end of the day. Um, about a third is a customer who pays cash, COD, right? Pays cash for us to do a service. And about a third are, are corporate customers who, you know, pay us via ACH on, on payment terms. Um, you know, think, uh, think the subcontractors that work for Amazon or, or, you know, grocery stores, things like that, delivering food, um, truck rental services, right? Ryder and Penske and things like that. So that reminds me of the, the other thing that maybe people wouldn't like about this business is that they, there's not recurring revenue. Um, but I assume some of these corporate accounts, I mean, I know from your business plan that some of these corporate accounts are contracts. 
Um, so they are, there's a recurring nature to them. Talk to me about, and yeah, talk to me about that a little bit. Dive, dive into those, those three buckets. Yeah, so they're, if, the, the insurance company, the COD, the corporate, sorry, the talk kind of about the recurring or not nature of those, where, where the money, where comes, the money from. comes from and the nature of the money and which <laughs> of these is the, the opportunity for growth, which of these buckets, if not all. Yeah, absolutely. So, so there is a, there is a reoccurring nature to a lot of our revenue, if not recurring. So, mm-hmm. so generally when you think about maybe take it up a level, because I think it's helpful for people to know, um, the towing industry at the top level, you can sort of break off into two categories. Um, there are businesses that do what we do, which is essentially towing broken things and getting things from point A to point B. And there are towing companies that do um, what is euphemistically referred to as parking management, but that is non-consensual towing, private property impound. Um, that is the trolling around parking lots, finding cars that are parked in the wrong place, towing them, and then the customer's got to come in, or the, the unintentional customer has to come and pay the bill to get their car back. Um, and generally, those businesses also do repossession work, right? So going out and finding uh, finding cars where the lien holder is trying to reclaim the vehicle. Um, and usually what you find is that those two sides of the industry never cross with one another. Um, different skill set for drivers, different way of operating the business, different financials, um, vastly different insurance concerns, uh, both on workers' comp and liability. So generally, those are very two different sides of the industry. So we we focus on the the side where it's moving broken stuff or moving things from point A to point B. Um, and the way we make our money, again, falls into a couple of different buckets. Um, we have cash calls. So that is customers who break down, go and Google for towing company near me, call us and we go out and we do the thing. Um, mostly light duty towing, so passenger vehicles. Although we do, we, we do occasionally do some heavy duty cash business. Could be a a hotshot operator, right? A person just owns one tractor and trailer that broke down and needs to go from A to B. Um, another piece of the business is what are called rotation contracts. So, um, you know, we have several of those with local cities, counties, state highway patrol, things like that, where essentially if, if you are a towing company in a geographic area and you meet a set of requirements around physical location, insurability, uh, ability to respond in a particular, in a specific amount of time, you get on that rotation, and that's essentially car accidents, right? So when a car, when a vehicle gets in an accident or has to be impounded, um, the police or the highway patrol call whoever is next on the rotation. You show up, you respond. Technically, the police aren't your customer; they're the end customer, or really their insurance company is your customer. So we take the vehicles, we bring it back to our lot, we we sit on them and wait, uh, and they disposition in one of two ways: either it sits with us for long enough that we can put a lien on the vehicle, in which case we sell it. Or it sits for us long enough and an insurance company or a customer finally comes to pay and get it released. So, you know, there's a fair bit of money in that storage because storage has no, no, no incremental cost to us. Like we pay for our lots and our facilities. So it doesn't cost us anything to have a vehicle sitting there. Um, and then third are, are those commercial accounts. Um, and that is, uh, mostly on the medium and heavy duty towing side of things. So that, again, that's truck fleets, bus fleets, things like that, where we have contracts, which generally are not a committed revenue, but rather here's the parameters by which we're going to operate, how we're going to invoice you, we'll offer you credit terms, here's some preferred pricing that you get. And when one of your things breaks down, you call us. So to the beginning, cash calls, purely one-off in nature. Um, I'm actually surprised at the number of repeat customers we have, maybe just with very unreliable cars, but it's fundamentally, <laughs> right, that is not recurring in nature. That is purely a marketing-driven exercise. Um, 
Rotation work is, I would call it reoccurring in that vehicles are not getting into fewer accidents in the areas that we are in. And generally the bar is fairly high to get onto a police rotation. So there's not risk of additional companies starting up and getting on a rotation and therefore diluting our share of that pie. So that mm -hmm. is reoccurring in nature, right? Cars get in accidents, we go and get them. Um, and then the commercial contracts are ones where we can absolutely, again, are reoccurring in nature. Most of these are medium-sized fleets, right? Our customers have anywhere between 10 to, you know, hundreds, or in the case of some of the national customers, thousands of vehicles on the road. Um, and they, you know, if they're in our area and need service, they call us. And again, those trucks break down on a highly regular basis. Um, truck drivers quit and abandon their trucks wherever they happen to be. I, I learned that. Uh, I had no idea that yeah. actually happened. Um, yeah. So so it is reoccurring in nature. Um, and that is one where it's not marketing, right? That's a sales or biz dev driven growth where we can go out and spend some time with with the fleet managers and operators of these companies to go and, you know, drive additional commercial business. And across those three, the cash on delivery, the the corporate contracts and the the uh, the rotational with the police, where, how do they rank in terms of profitability and how do they rank in terms of growth opportunity? Yeah, absolutely. So um, rotation stuff tends to be the most profitable. And the reason for that is um, twofold. One, uh, heavy truck accidents. So think tractor trailers overturning, take a lot of work to clean up and require a lot of specialized equipment. And we bill fairly heavily for those. Um, you know, we, we, we deal with maybe one overturned tractor trailer a month and you can, you can think the typical recovery bill for something like that is going to be 15 to $20,000. Um, additionally, the rotation stuff tends to be the most profitable because, uh, we accrue storage fees while the owner or the insurance company are, are figuring out how to disposition a vehicle, right? Are they going to repair it? Are they going to total it? What have you? Um, and also we tend to, in our size business, we have, we have 30 to 40 vehicles a month that we put, that we've had long enough, 120 something days to put a lien on and that we are then able to sell for scrap or salvage. Um, and that's all basically straight to the bottom line, right? We, we pay our employees right at the beginning when the work gets done. And then every day of storage that gets accrued, it just sort of drops straight down, uh, straight down to the bottom line. Um, so that's our most profitable. Um, following behind that would be uh, the commercial stuff because it is mostly medium heavy duty towing. Again, highly specialized equipment. That's where we have uh, CDL drivers driving big trucks. Um, and we bill proportionately for that, right? We charge substantially more. It costs much more to tow a tractor trailer than it does to tow a, a Honda Civic. Um, and then cash calls are kind of the least profitable, but the um, the easiest to control volume in, in the near term only because they're, they're marketing driven, right? So we've seen um, tremendous growth even in the past few months in our cash call business simply by putting a focus on revamping a website, putting a real, real heavy focus on driving positive Google reviews and sort of leading ourselves to top of search. And how sophisticated are the other um cash call towing companies in terms of their Google positioning? I mean, is it pretty uh, easy out there out there to jump to the top? It is, yeah. I mean, it, essentially, you can, you can go and take a look at, at websites for towing companies in, in any given area, and you can see that the majority of them have not been updated in several years to, to, to many years. Um, the majority but, but, have But no, I imagine the searcher isn't even clicking onto the website. They're probably just no, going correct, straight but from all Google. Of those Right. And, and I'm far from an expert when it comes to SEO, but, but from everything I've understood, 
keeping websites refreshed, having relevant, meaningful content, actually having positive reviews and a velocity of reviews that is adding more reviews over time all mm -hmm. starts to contribute to search uh, uh, position and ranking. Um, mm -hmm. And what we're seeing as we as we start to see where people are clicking, and we don't quite have the ability to correlate website to call, but um, we are seeing that, right, a lot of people are, are now, at least to find us, um, we get more views, if you will, on our profile in Google Maps on our business profile than mm -hmm. we do people actually searching for us and clicking on the website. So I don't know if that's Google directing them there, people searching in Maps versus searching on google.com um but it's it's so far right knock on wood um so far it's relatively easy to move the needle on that front while we then spend time on the more sort of intensive efforts of going and selling more commercial customers because rotations we can't grow like they just they are what they are uh, the only way we grow a rotation business would be we have to open up additional facilities and be eligible for additional rotations in other geographies be they different cities different counties etc fantastic and just to close us out on the towing business, what about uh, labor and finding drivers and the challenges there and what, what what it's been like and what you predict it's going to be like for the next year or two? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things we heard leading into it and at the at the tow show in Baltimore was sort of nothing but doom and gloom about finding employees. Um, everyone's having a nightmare of a time finding drivers. And we didn't think it could be that hard. Um, and again, maybe there's some naivete on display there. But you know, after <laughs> looking at how most of these companies are hiring – which is maybe a post on their Facebook page once a month saying, hey, we're hiring for drivers and dispatchers. Maybe it's just relying on walk-in traffic, like people who walk in the door and want to complete a job application. And we get a couple of those a week generally. Um, but, you know, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot to be done about bringing sort of modern hiring practices to this. And you know, in our case, we're going out and trying to identify, you know, how do we go and find drivers who are happily or maybe not so happily employed elsewhere, but are already in the industry, and how do we convince them to come over and work um, work for us? You know, generally it's a it's a good job. It requires a fair bit of skill. We we have a training program to bring new people in the door. You know, we without getting into too much detail on sort of how the industry pays drivers. You know, our drivers for the light duty side of things, that is, guys that don't have a CDL, guys and, and gals. We have a few women we've hired. Um, our non-CDL drivers make anywhere between, you know, $45,000 and about $80,000 a year. Um, our CDL drivers make anywhere from kind of $70,000 a year up to, you know, our, our highest earners make $110,000, $120,000 a year. So it's a it's a really good job that it, especially at the higher end and at the on the CDL side, requires a ton of experience and a deep level of technical skill and expertise. Um, people are out there, you, you know, I... I we have, again, knock on wood, we've had no problem bringing on four or five drivers in the past few months, as well as um, sending, you know, we we just had one that we sent to go get his CDL and just passed and he's now driving a heavy truck for us. Um, so the people are out there. I, I don't think it's as as um, as doom and gloom as others would indicate. Um, going back to the kind of the everything curve, hiring and, and, and learning and development is just one of kind of the million areas that it seems like a lot of companies are just exceedingly far behind here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's encouraging for searchers out there. I wonder I wonder if that extends to other industries. I'm sure it does. I would imagine it does. Yeah. Matthew, this has been great. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that we should have I didn't ask you? Um, hmm. 
Your business plan. So you you had sent me the business plan that you put together <laughs> yep. for, for the bank, as searchers um, often need to. Um, I think yours was a little bit more comprehensive than than the norm. It's probably a 20-page document. Yeah, 20, yeah, 25 that. page per document. Um, and it's great. I mean, it was really, I think it's a good template for how to think about doing a business plan as a searcher, but it also is just really interesting if you want to do a deep dive into the towing business. So um, <laughs> so you said people could reach out to you for that, if, or actually that I could, that you might have to redact some of the sensitive stuff, but that, that I could then link to a redacted version of it. Um, yeah, so, yeah, happy, um, happy to share that. Great. So we'll, we'll get that in the show notes. Um, anything else? I mean, I think the one, the one question, which I think every employee asked at the beginning and you haven't yet is kind of, is why the towing industry? Like this is okay. kind of an oddball yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the, the real quick answer and, and, and I, I, it is the truth it is, um, it's not going anywhere. Like at the yeah. end of the day, the, the thesis is at its base, extraordinarily simple, right? There are more cars on the road. There is more cargo being transported on the road. Things are not getting more reliable. I had a Tesla for a couple of years. I'm probably going to get flack for this, but full self-driving is not it. That's not the future that's going to keep people from not having accidents and vehicles not breaking down, at least not for the next couple of decades. Um, so the business is not going anywhere. Um, the cost structure is a really interesting one. We pay drivers on commission. So we've got a real, a real nice lock between revenue we generate and how much we pay in, in, in person power for most of our employees. Um, the downside, of course, is, is CapEx heavy, but um, I think the combination of the business isn't going anywhere and how nascent the industry is on that curve of professionalizing um, makes it feel a lot like, and I've, I've sanity checked this with a handful of folks who I, and I know who have you know, bought HVAC and plumbing businesses, say five to 10 years ago. Um, mm -hmm. It sure seems like the way this industry feels now is much like the HVAC business did, say, 10 years ago. So I think there's a lot of room to run over the next bunch of years in, in, in bringing a level of professionalism to how you operate and how you how you market and sell and grow these businesses. Um, and, you know, they're, they're, they're hyper local in nature. Like our heavy stuff goes out to multiple States, but fundamentally we're, we're dealing with North Carolina and really the Eastern half of North Carolina. And there's a ton of room to grow. Mm -hmm. And you didn't set out to find a towing business. You had those businesses that you were not interested in. And then with, with that in mind, you went to brokers and biz by sell and then looked at whatever struck your fancy and up came this towing company. And then you did a deep. Yeah. Dive. I yeah. saw this yeah. and kind of read through the sim and went, wow, this is not an industry I'd given any consideration to, but it's actually really interesting. And let's sit down and have a talk with the sellers, spent a couple hours together the first time and started to go deeper and deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole. And, uh, and here we are. <laughs> here you are. Well, um, you talk about a rabbit hole, but still it's been, it, you went down that rabbit hole quickly and executed on it because again, <laughs> nine months ago, you were wondering what you were going to do with your money and, and here you Correct. sit, and, and here you sit owning a, a, a one of, and, and I don't think you said this explicitly, but it's the size of your, uh, of East Coast Towing puts it in the top 2% of towing businesses in the country. So, from what I can tell, like right, there's no, there's no true source of data there, but sort of anecdotally from what I can tell. We are we are one of the larger businesses in general. Um, I know I've spoken to operators and, and know there are companies out there doing say ten to twenty million dollars in revenue in a handful of other parts of the country. Um, but you know there is not, to my knowledge, and I'm, again I'm happy to be corrected here. I know there was one in the past that was a, a prior PE roll up that went bankrupt and, and fell apart um, of you know fifty to hundred million dollar roll up vehicle. Mm -hmm. um, but there's none out there that I'm aware of, and, and like I said, again. A bit more than anecdotally, but most are 
two or three trucks, which kind of equates to three, four hundred thousand dollars in revenue somewhere in that vicinity. Mm -hmm. And at this Baltimore show, nobody's talking about people trying to buy their businesses because you'll, you'll hear anecdotally from people who at, at plumbing business, uh, at plumbing industry conferences and HVAC industry conferences that, yeah. you know, they, they are very, these owners, these retiring owners are very aware of the searcher and, and phenomenon and certainly private equity yeah. because their doors being knocked on constantly. And so they talk about it. It, it, it was there it any not, of that? It doesn't, no, there, there was not. There were, um, there were a handful of PE analysts that we picked out and were able to talk to that are their firms, you know, from, from discussions we had, their firms are kind of just starting to put a thesis together. Um, I've personally spoken to, again, a handful of PE firms that I know are like looking at the industry from an early days standpoint, but it's definitely not something that any current owners, especially those in the industry a long time, sort of view out there as a thing that's happening. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, further evidence that yeah, it's it's uh, nascent for for interest from outsiders. Exactly. Um, so listen, listen to that audience. Very cool, Matthew. What? How do you prefer people reach out to you? Because I, I assume you you will get some outreach from this. Do you prefer LinkedIn, Twitter, email? Yeah, I mean, easiest is going to be uh, easiest is going to be email uh, or or Twitter. I, I will apologize; I'm not super on top of my DMs, but I'll I'll I'll, I'll pay more attention following this. Um, so, you know, I, I, you already give information here. How do you want to post that? I'm not sure how you want to. Yeah, I'll, I'll post it on, in the show notes here. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so email, email and Twitter both work well. And like I said, always happy, happy to, happy to chat and see where I can help people. You know, if you're, if you're looking at the towing industry in particular, happy to share what I've been able to learn over the past nine months. And if you just want to talk about, you know, placing an operator again, happy to, happy to share what I've learned. I, I, I don't think I'm an expert, but, um, have managed have managed well so far. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating topic and a, and a really hopeful one because um, there's so much leverage to be gained if, yeah. if if you can crack that nut. Matthew, thanks so much for the time and in your transparency. What a fascinating story. Will, I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. 